Hello, my fellow Brappentonians, and welcome to Brap Talk. This is a weekly podcast where we discuss the happenings of the motorcycle industry. I am your host, Jensen Beeler, and joining me on this two-wheeled adventure is the Minister of Motorcycles himself, Mr. Shaheen Alvandi. That's the Shah of Brap to you, man. I thought we are going to coin this thing. Uh, I'm just going to keep trying out new titles for you and see what sticks. All right, you keep trying, and I'm sure somebody will tell us what they like better. Shaheen, we've got a really good show today. I'm pretty stoked. Got a couple newsy items, but what uh, I really want to get to after that is we're going to basically fix dealerships. I think that is one of the first steps in helping our beloved industry become better in 2019. Yeah, we found that we found the solution. We found the answer. We're going to fix the motorcycle dealership thing. Don't worry about it. And we're doing it for free, guys. Free. Freebie. Freebie. If that doesn't make you sign up for A&R Pro, nothing will. Oh, don't put that on me. <laughs> I mean, sign up for I will gladly take your money, but don't put that on me. But... um. Yeah, this is definitely something that's up your alley, so I want to get to that in a minute. But before we do that, I want to get the Ducati's drinking game going strong. because oh, the headline, on, let me pour my drink. Let me pour my drink. <laughs> Jesus. The headline from today was that KTM wants to buy Ducati. Stefan Perrier, the CEO of KTM, was talking to Speedweek, which is a German language. It's like the the German language. The one. Online publication. About, uh, I mean... He basically expressed his interest in buying the Ducati brand and kind of moosed about how it would work. The The funny thing with, with, with Stefan is that he just has a habit of just saying shit sometimes. He's yeah, kind so of, this is a guy like having like a conversation with his buddy, like the way I am like, hey, Jensen, you know, I really like Dodge Vipers. I'm going to buy one one day. Well, let's put it, let's put it this way. KTM found out that they were going to go race in MotoGP. Because Stefan was just one day like, oh, yeah, no, I think we're going to start a MotoGP program. <laughs> and then like the very next day, they're like, oh, yeah, we're spending like $100 million on a new MotoGP program, oh, guys. So maybe there's some validity to his just, you know, bar talk. Oh, I think absolutely. I think you have to take this very serious because one, he's a serious person. I have a, I have a tremendous amount of respect for him. I think he's done amazing things with KTM and Husqvarna and, and just seems pretty on point with his takes of the industry and i don't think you can argue with the success that his company has had they're they're crushing it uh that is very true they're very likely to be the largest european motorcycle manufacturer by the end of the year i'm pretty sure yeah i mean they're the only ones that are really showing positive numbers all all last year 2018 this year i guess still they definitely rival bmw but they're going to do about 265,000 units so i'd have to go check all the totals (laughs) from the brands but that's a lot of that's a lot of cheese. That might be more units than Harley Davidson does. Now that I think about it, huh? Gotta go. Do, gotta go back. Ooh, and we, do gotta, math. we gotta do some research here. I, I is KTM the new orange and black? Mm. <laughs> mm. Put that shit on Netflix. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, I like it. I like the way that's going. So the question is, how legit is this conversation? I think I think you have to take it seriously. I don't think it's just him idly speculating. Although it kind of sounds like it in, in a couple ways. Um, we know that there is people inside Volkswagen that would like to get rid of the Ducati brand. We know that there's people inside Volkswagen that would like to keep it. What do you do with Ducati going forward? I don't know. They still have some stuff that they need to figure out from their diesel gate. They have a really strong focus on electric mobility. How does Ducati fit into that? Uh, it remains to be seen, but I think there is a good argument to be made, but that a brand like Ducati could do well in an, a company ownership structure like KTM's. The thing I don't get is where he, um, Mr. Perrier starts 
speculating on how like actually he he, he references Volkswagen as this like it's a their platform strategy. Right. So we're like Volkswagen cars and Audi cars and Bugattis and all these brands that are under one roof share a lot of the same bits and pieces, especially like motors and transmissions. That's really hard to see between KTM, Husqvarna, and Ducati. Hmm. It's like, do we see a, a Desmodromic valve train on a Husky? Are we going to see like big thumping singles on a Ducati? So, do you think if this, this if this was to happen, they would merge the two together, or it would no. be something where they would just? I mean, I, I I feel like the smart move would be to keep Ducati separate. No, absolutely, you keep it separate. But but look at like how KTM and Husqvarna are separate from each other. Yeah, they have separate dealerships. Right. They have separate models, but they all kind of share like. A KTM 450 dirt bike is not that different from a from a Husqvarna 450 dirt bike. Like it's like literally change the numbers slightly just on the sticker. It's like different colors, different subframe, and different suspension. Like it's not that different, which is how you keep costs down and you keep development costs down, um, production costs and development costs. And like that's like the thing where like I have a hard time seeing that with Ducati. Like no, I don't think like KTM and Ducati become like one brand or anything. I think you Ducati is such a strong brand. He even says it himself. Like Ducati is the Ferrari of motorcycles. Yeah. You know, he's got a lot of respect for that brand. You don't throw that out of the window. But I just don't see where the business efficiencies are. If you want, if you want my idea. This is a teaser for a story I've been percolating on. Um, Ducati, or aka Volkswagen, should buy TM Racing, which is an Italian dirt bike brand. Oh. Which has a great history of, of racing. They're very performance-oriented. They're very small. They're very boutique. They're very expensive. So then you have a Ducati brand of dirt bike. Which is basically your Ducati brand of dirt bike. You don't have to like take the Ducati brand and go off-road with it. You can keep Ducati as kind of an on-road brand. You keep TM as kind of a dirt bike brand. But the brand values have a lot of overlap, and that'd be a good way for Ducati to get onto the dirt side. That's my opinion, uh, Claudio. If that happens, I'll, you know, Daddy wants a taste. <laughs> you know, I, I I may even get rid of my Alta if that happens. To have three Ducatis in the garage, fuck. TMs are sick. I TMs are like they're really, 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 really hard to find in the United States. Those are sick bikes, especially 10, 15 years ago. Like their performance level then is kind of where most of the OEMs are at now. I don't know if they've been able to quite keep up with with the performance wars that have been going on but they were the sharpened like if you showed up at like a motocross event or a hill climb we used to see it a lot at the pikes peak hill climb well the 450 class leader um was gary tracy and Mm. he would race a 450 tm supermoto and rip it so back to this idea of ktm might have been a 530 don't quote me on that i'll quote you any way i want and i'll even give you a voice i'm working on it i don't know what it is yet um so the back to the KTM buying Ducati. Yeah. The fear that I would have here of it being truth, and I'm fear is too strong of a word. I don't know. It could be a good thing or a bad your, thing. Your hesitation. I'm hesitant. Thank you. My hesitance in this is that not that long ago, Volkswagen's uh uh you know chief executive officer, which kind of a big guy, said some semi-threatening things about Ducati. Yeah. In the in the in the lines of either we find a way for Ducati which provides some growth. Or we have to look at new ownership. Yeah, I think people misinterpreted that, though. Because I, I think people focused on the wrong part of that sentence where he's like, hey, we got to get rid of Ducati or forgot how how it can grow. And I think the the that's why like I sit there and I think like TM Racing like as an acquisition would be really good. Like You can use Ducati as a jumping off point to everything in the two-wheeled world. Look at like Harley-Davidson's new business plan. 
you know, they went back to the drawing board and said, Hey, okay. Yeah. We need to get into uh, the Asian markets. We need to get into female minority and younger riders. We need to get into Europe. We need to get into electrics. We need to get into segments that are outside of the cruiser slash touring uh, segments. Right. And like Audi doesn't, or sorry, Volkswagen doesn't really have a, a vehicle to do that. If you, you know, pardon the phrase, but Ducati could be that for them. Now, where do you want to take the Ducati brand? I don't know. But Ducati Motor Holding mm-hmm. as like a little company entity could have the Ducati brand underneath it, the TM Racing brand underneath it. It could have an electric brand underneath it. It could have a jet ski brand underneath it. It could have a bicycle brand underneath it, an electric bike. You know, they could branch that out where like that ownership division, business unit thing, bullshit, bingo, business school talk. <laughs> um you know, could be the two-wheel area for Volkswagen. Well, to, and you're, to you're not too far off base here. I mean, Ducati's already trying to do that by having the Scrambler be its own brand. You know, as, when it first started, yeah. they were pushing so hard. If you go to a dealership, they have their quote-unquote land of joy. And <laughs> I know, I, I still <laughs> did, chuckle did at anyone, it. Did anyone research that in the U.S.? Like, I just feel like the connotation's just a little too... Rephrasing, Ducati? Are we rephrasing here? This is how you get ants. <laughs> That's all I know. <laughs> So, I mean, they were, they were trying to do that because if you look at Scrambler, it wasn't called the Ducati Scrambler. It was called Scrambler by Ducati. By Ducati, yeah. So maybe that is a thing, that, that sub subcategory under Ducati being the, the umbrella. Yeah, and I get critical of Ducati for that because I feel like that was something that kind of made sense, but like it only went halfway. And that, that was the brainchild of Cristiano Soleil, who, who's really into like sub-brands. He's, he's the CEO of Dainese now. And sure enough, he gets there and he started creating sub-brands in the Dainese brand with their Anniversario lineup um, and and some other things that are eluding my brain right now. But that's that's kind of his jam. And that's fine. And I think there's value in the sub-brand. But like the Scrambler Ducati brand as it is or some brand just never quite worked for me in terms of like its ability to stand up on its own. And I think you even see that kind of in the name where it's Scrambler by Ducati. It wasn't. Yep. Look at, I think the better way of showing it is look at KTM and Husky. Mm-hmm. Where it's like those are two distinct brands that, in the U.S. at least, you have to have basically separate dealerships. It's really hard to find a KTM slash Husky dealership. They don't yeah. like doing that. So they've done a really good job of kind of like building a Chinese wall between the two brands. But on the business side, it makes a lot of sense. Because like, hey, we're making the same chassis, we're making the same engines, we're sourcing the same parts from the same suppliers. Um, you know, there's a lot of like good synergies. If I can use another like business school like bingo it. thing, I like there. it. Um, there's some good synergies between those brands. And I think that's the part of me like that struggled a little bit with the Ducati brand and the Scrambler brand because they were, I don't know, it just, it just, they were too different enough to like be the same, but they were too opposite to be the similar. I mean, that's a really, that sounds really stupid when I hear it come out of my mouth. I see where you're going with this. And the question that I would have is where do you think Ducati went wrong? Because if you look at KTM versus Husky, there are a lot of similarities between them. If if you looked at it just, you know, just with eyes wide open, you could see the similarities. And Ducati did the same thing where they're borrowing a motor from an older monster for the standard 800 Scrambler and the 1100. And it's like this barely veiled idea of like just recycling something that they had in the parts bins. So, and, and, and there was a lot of appeal to it initially. I think in 2015 when the Scrambler came out, they, they couldn't sell enough of them. But now if you go to a dealership, it's like, I mean, it's still selling, but it's not, the hype is gone, I think. Yeah, I mean, sales are just dropping off like flies. I, I would love to see what the, 
the actual profits on that are. I think I think the first thing they got wrong is the name. The name Scrambler already ties you into a very specific style of motorcycle. Right. Um, I would have I would have called it something else. And then like this, the heritage play, like by the time Ducati got into it, like that was maybe the last or the second to last year of like a real viable thing from an OEM on the, on the heritage play. Like that's, that's already played out. Like the scramble things kind of played out. The cafe things kind of played out. The new thing seems to be kind of like 1980s resto mods. (laughs) Right. So yeah, it's just, it just didn't seem like a brand that was very sustainable and it didn't seem like a brand that could stand up on its own two feet. And maybe that's why it's called like a sub brand or, or, or whatever, but it, it just, it just never got to leave the mothership enough that it could stand up on its own two feet. Right. They, they held it in really, really tightly while all, while trying to create this other brand. And I don't get, and I don't get like, cause I, I know like on the dealership side, they're really trying to push to have like a scrambler space and they want oh, to yeah. push like a certain apparel and it had to have a certain different look and feel. And you go to world Ducati week and there's like a scrambler area and like, they're really trying to like make this a distinct thing, but like I still look, kind of look at it. I'm like, okay, is this sub brand going to still be here in five years? That's the question we asked from the minute they came in. You know? It just seemed like, oh, okay, we're taking this old technology and we're going to rebrand it and put a new fresh face on it and call it a scrambler. And then when we noticed the second and third year that they're essentially using the exact same everything and just giving it new names and new paint jobs and having like 10 different versions of it, but it's ultimately the exact same bike. It's like, all right, guys, you've clearly used up all the imagination you had on this thing. What's next? Yeah, and I don't think there is a good answer to what's next. I think that's the struggle for Ducati. And I think that's where it comes back to to what Volkswagen said. Like, we need to find meaningful growth. Now, that to me means building out Ducati motor holdings, holdings of motorcycle companies. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's where my, like, thought process is with TM. Uh, I think it means looking at other segments inside the industry. I mean, yeah, okay, there's a Scrambler, what is it, 62, Yep, the 400. But really, there's nothing in the lineup below 700 cc's. No, so they need to get really exciting because, you know, as we were talking about Husky, I mean, they've got two of the more exciting sort of like cafe-ish bikes yeah. right now. I, I would, I love Ducatis. I, I've, I drank that Kool-Aid a long time ago. And I would ride that Husky over the the Scrambler all day. The 401 you're talking about. 401 and the 701. Yeah. I, I think that's valid. And you look at like, so they don't have smaller displacement machines. They don't really have learner machines. They don't really have anything that's going to sell well in the regions of the world where motorcycles are selling well. Right. Which is India, China, Southeast Asia. We're seeing South America, pri- primarily Brazil, kind of coming online. We're starting to see other parts of Asia coming online. Um there's, you know, Africa eventually is going to be a hot market for, for bikes if you give it enough time. Um, and you look at like Ducati's lineup, like those are the bikes that only sell well in the U.S. and United or in the U.S. and in Europe. And guess what? Markets aren't doing great. Europe's up like 1%, 2% this year. Woo-hoo. United States is down like down, 7%. Yeah. yeah. So that's that's the horror. Or, yeah, that's the horse that you're attaching your your buggy to. Think about it a little bit. Um and I also understand that, like, the motorcyclist, like, the demographic of who a motorcyclist is is changing substantially. We just saw the other day that the MIC is reporting that uh, 19% of motorcyclists in the United States are female. I like it. Keep climbing that number. Uh, keep climbing that number. I'm worried that that is less impressive than we think because so many old men have moved out of the motorcycle industry. I don't think the 
absolute number of women in the motorcycle industry has really gained that much. I think that percentage change is coming because so many men are leaving the motorcycle really? industry. That's my theory. I've got a little data to support that, and I got a little data to argue against it. And if the MIC could, um, I don't know, make its figures publicly available so people can make intelligent decisions about the <laughs> motorcycle industry, that would be fantastic. But I talked to them a little bit about it, and they really wouldn't give me a good direct answer, which makes me think I might be right. So what you're saying is you want a powers that be to show you all their cards. Interesting. I, I like mean, where I'm your not, head's at. I'm not like saying I'm an only child, but, you know, <laughs> I want what I want. <laughs> it's interesting. I, I keep, Watch this space. Some interesting stuff's going to happen in this space. We know there's some powers in Volkswagen that want to sell it. Uh, Ducati out. There, here's a uh, interesting potential buyer. It's going to cost them a billion dollars, though. Like, straight up. Like, well, K- I mean, uh, didn't, didn't Volkswagen buy Ducati for 1.25? They bought Ducati for one point one or one point two million dollars, but that's that's conver- currency conversion. It was like seven hundred eighty million euro or eight hundred million euro, hmm. and I don't know what the currency exchange is now. So that's it's not good to compare dollars to dollars. You should compare yeah, euros to fair. euro. So let's say they spent eight hundred million euros. Ducati's or VW is going to want like at least eight hundred million euros because it's not like Ducati's worth less. Yeah. Than if when anything, they I mean, they've 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 probably, gone up, but not a ton. I, I would I would peg it at um eight hundred fifty million euros or something like that. I was gonna say eight hundred million and one euros and one. <laughs> was this like prices right rules? Hey man, you know you go up one euro at a time. Money's money. <laughs> I'll give you one euro. <laughs> Which is, which is funny. That's what like MV Augusta was sold for. Was one euro. <laughs> I think I think it was technically it was two, but yeah. Uh, you got to sell it for something. You can't give it away for free. Yeah. Um, let's move on because I want to get through this so we can get to the, the, the cool part of the show as I like to call it uh, the headline I wrote was is this the end of this week's Suzuki Hayabusa rumors there's been a lot of chatter in Europe about the end of the Suzuki Hayabusa Suzuki's J- Japanese page even s- calls the Hayabusa uh, Hayabusa 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 the production run of the Hayabusa being over but there's no. a caveat there's a caveat. It's still a 2019 model in the United States. So basically all the bikes that they've built are going to the United States. When was the last time this bike was refreshed? 2008, I believe. Dang. Came out in 1999. That's very Kawasaki of them to keep the same model the same way for that long. Suzuki. The, oh, oh, I know it's Suzuki. Oh, oh I'm you're saying, saying Kawasaki, Kawasaki. Was, was known for that. Like like the Ninja 250? which or, was like, or like the Concourse 1000 from 1986 to 2006. I know the, it's an ugly ass bike. 20 years. Or the KLR, which they just finally killed <laughs> off. Finally. Which like, why? Like <laughs> literally, like if you were going to kill that bike off, it should have been 20 years ago. Not now. I think they did it just to make you like talk about it. And here we are talking about yeah. it. <laughs> Job well done, Kawasaki. They're just putting like a Jedi mind trick on us. <laughs> hey, you want to know a neat, funny little thing about the Hayabusa? No. My name is Shaheen, <laughs> which means Peregrine Falcon. Guess what a Hayabusa is? Oh, you're the Hayabusa. This is my namesake. I need to own one one day this just is, so I can say this, I have one. This is what the the your intro should have been. The oh. like the just Hayabusa the noise. Just caca. Um the the Well, here's the fun. Here's I got a fun factoid for you. Let's okay, this way. hit me. How many bikes a year or how many Hayabusa's a year do you think Suzuki sells in the US right now? Like, what, what do you think? How many do you think they sold last year? 1,200. That's actually pretty close. Is it? The, the Hayabusa sells just as well as the brand new freaking Jixer does. You pretty know where they sell it. most of those? Florida. Florida and Georgia. Yeah. 
I wonder why. <laughs> well, you know, a lot of flat, straight roads and a lot of drag racing. And yeah, uh, listen, man, the first time I saw a bike do sub 10 seconds was a bone stock Hayabusa with a very, very capable rider on it. Now, I have zero interest in drag racing, but that's fucking impressive. That's impressive. I can't do that. No. I had someone ask me today, like, what's your uh, eighth mile time? I'm like, I have no idea. <laughs> uh, wow. 300. Is that good? Depends on know. how bad I have to go to the bathroom. I'm literally just making up numbers. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, this is a bike that sells really well in the U.S. Now, now it does seem that, okay, the production's over. And I think the reason the production over is, Shane, I think we're about to see the new Hayabusa drop. Oh, is it going to have a supercharger on it? I think it's going to have a turbo. Ooh. I really wanted to have a turbo. We, we we had a Bothan suggest that it had a turbo. And then I had like other Bothans be like, no, no turbo. So we shall see what it is. But I really, I really do think that we're going to see an early 2020 model in the next couple months. That would actually excite the hell out of me. I, for one, love the Hayabusa. I've always loved it. I know it's it's something that a lot of people make fun of because it's just that big, fat, heavy bike. But anyone who's ever ridden one gets off of it and goes, holy crap, that thing is so mighty. Can you, like, like let's have a thought experiment. Can you imagine what a 2019, 2020 model year Hayabusa is going to look like? Because, like, this is a bike that... How much bubblier can it get? How much bubblier can it get? But, like, just, <laughs> I think, like... If it, let's say it's 1300cc still or 1400cc it's going to be like a 250 horsepower it bike. better be you know it's going to be redonkulous so you know what i would love to see all jokes aside is something that sort of uh mimics what kawasaki did with the h2 bikes. i think that's exactly what it's going to be right it's, it should cost a little bit more but it should be really really exclusive and really really fucking fast yeah yeah i'm super stoked about this i i've been kind of a little poopy on suzuki because they haven't quite gotten their shit together in the, in the pace that i would like to see right but i'm excited about the new katana i think that was smart yep the new Jixer gets totally neutered by the epa but is a pretty good bike once you uncork it yeah i think this bike's gonna be right i think it's gonna have an imu for launch control and traction control i think it's gonna have corner and abs if they're smart, they'll they'll keep a little bit of a mind for like the sport touring guys because that was a big thing for the for the old Busa, and I think it's gonna be a, a straight line bullet. I think you're what gonna. What if abs- they make it look like the Akira bike? For those of you who aren't, oh, you yeah, Google Akira, Google can, Akira, can, please yeah. right now. You know the most Tetsuo <laughs> Akira. Yeah. Uh, I I think it's the most famous motorcycle in the world. Even people that don't have motorcycles are like, oh yeah, that thing in Akira. Yeah. Oh, that'd be cool. It. I, I think I don't think they're going to stray too far from the high boost line. We, we saw what was it a year or two ago? Um, Suzuki brought out the GSX concept. Uh huh. I remember that thing. And I think that's kind of teasing us what the boost is going to okay. look like. You know what they shouldn't do is a naked Hayabusa. Remember the B King? Oh uh, yeah, I remember the B King. The concept for the B King was rad. The concept was bitching, and then I saw one in the showroom, and I was like, I yeah. don't. Think then it was supposed to look like this. Brought the production bike and it's like, how did you guys fuck this up? Uh, have you ever sat on one? No. I can't fit on a beaking. As big as it is, the, the tank is super sculpted and my legs don't fit underneath it. Huh. And I have a 33-inch inseam, so I'm not that big. Let me tell you guys, he uses all 33 inches. Mm, all of it. Um. Yeah, I mean, I hope, I hope Suzuki doesn't fuck this up. It, I think it, they'll it, do well. It's, it's such an important bike. Uh-huh. It's such an important bike in like the history of motorcycling that I'm excited, but we shall see. I, I really think we only got maybe at the maximum six months to wait. I think more likely like two or three months. It's it's too big of a bike to keep people waiting on. Too big to fail. Spe- speaking of too big to fail. Uh-oh. 
the headline I wrote was BMW teases an 1800cc <laughs> air-cooled boxer boxer boxer, boxer the engine boxers, design. Yeah. The boxer, it is here. <laughs> yeah, the yeah. cylinder heads they point out into your legs. So how far out does this motor stick out on each side? I'm going with two and a half feet. <laughs> on each side, just don't make turns ever. Does it Not come with like little rollers? The, fins, the air cooling fins. That those add another nine inches. <laughs> and those are real German inches too, by the real way. The Germans. <laughs> they do not fuck around with the engines. Listen, I, I have to say I I don't do a good German accent. What's that? I, I do not do a good your, German accent. Your German accent kind of goes into Russian really quickly. It, I, I have just like standard like like amalgamation Eastern European accent. <laughs> Just throw them all together. It's a mishmash of yeah. old communism. Yeah. I like it. It's, 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 it's so really Russia, a German bike rides you. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like, like me doing Ural? accents. I always end up sounding like Borat. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a bad Borat. <laughs> I dated a Russian girl and she did not find that amusing. Well, I thought it was funny. I have a friend from Kazakhstan. She does not find Borat amazing. That I'm half not, Armenian. I think it's that hilarious. has not been a positive thing for their country. <laughs> well, clearly she's not number one or number two whore in that f- country. That's what he says. That's how he rates you. My sister, she's number two whore in Kazakhstan. Yeah, that, that's probably why. <laughs> probably, yeah. Let's not um, do that. Again. Back to this BMW. <laughs> I don't, I don't well, know. the Germans have a weird sense of humor. Like they make the most, I think, amazing technological cars, motorcycles, everything. And then every so often they're like, hey, we're going to throw the biggest boxer motor in this thing. Good luck. Well. What's the point of this thing, you think? think Are are they going full on cruiser? I think think they're going to do like a BMW version of cruiser. I don't think it's like Harley Davidson cruiser, but I think it's going to be pretty damn close. I think that's why. I think one, that's why it's air cooled. And they're doing like the heritage thing with the boxer design. Uh-huh. I think it's 1800 cc's because that's how big it needs to be to meet Euro 5 and still make the performance power, the performance figures that they <laughs> want, which I would guess is going to be around like 100 horsepower and 100 foot pounds of torque. God, I bet it makes more torque than that. It's just so much it's, displacement. It's just a lot, right? Uh, it's interesting. A couple of the photos that they publish show uh, a K bike series in the back, right. the K sixteen hundred B, the bagger, right? The the sort of the Honda Goldwing of the yeah, which is kind of like I think a tip off on what they're thinking. So we've heard rumors of BMW working on what the what was called a Diavel killer. And huh. I think this is it. I think this is the teasing, the starting of that teaser for it. And it doesn't look like it's going to be so much a Diavel killer as it's going to be like a Harley Davidson killer. Yeah, I can see this going after the Harley. Uh, I forget the name of it, but they have one that's super low and wide. Like and a Dyna Glide Terramaster, Screaming Eagle America. Fat Master Glide thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, anyone remember the R1200C? Because that did real well. Yeah, it did great. But that thing, I mean, that's the thing. I think that looked freaking horrible. But fugly. BMW's done a really good job, especially like look what they did with the R9T. Yeah. And they've had, they've done a lot of work with Roland Sands. They've done a lot of work. Uh, with custom bike designers and and like this this concept right it's not even a concept this engine is being teased by them working with custom works zon which is a japanese builder yeah so you know they're they're working with people that are very tuned into this space and know what the aesthetic needs to be know what the the i'm gonna use the word like zeitgeist i'm gonna hate saying it but like you know that kind of you flavor say with a what's going on. Are you going to say a word like zeitgeist? The zeitgeist. The zeitgeist will be perfect on this. This was some of the best zeitgeist we have. <laughs> That's the kind of shit that makes this mic break. By the way, I get excited and yeah, say I German. Just, I had to check the levels. Like, oh no, what do we do? <laughs> what do we do? Oh, oh, we're gonna have to edit that out. Oh no. 
Oh, geez. But I, I, I reserve judgment until I see it. I think I have a couple minds on this. I think it's a good, it's a, it's a huge untapped segment that BMW is not in that a boat ton of bikes get sold in. So there's, there's opportunity there. The downside is it's also a segment that's like rapidly falling away. Right. But, you know, okay. Like in the United States, the relevant market is roughly, let's say 200,000 units. Okay. And Harley Davidson accounts for like 150,000 of those. So they're still, they're still 45 some odd percent. So like they could, you know, even if they take like, you know, just a slice of that pie, like there's, there's 10,000 units to be sold there. There is. It's interesting you know? though. They're trying to steal a piece of pie that's diminishing already. Yeah. If they sell somewhere between ten to twenty thousand of these bikes, which isn't unreasonable, and that that'd be like a ten percent market share. Yeah. Um. That would that would outsell the BMW R twelve hundred GS in the US. That's that's so, that's lofty. I mean, it's not the craziest idea. I don't think it's going to be that high. I don't think this is going to be like a bestseller for them. But it, I think there is a, a case where it's like, yeah, we're not going to lose money here. We're going to sell some of these things, and if we build enough of a platform off of it and we make four or five models then we're going to do just fine here's an idea bmw make an hp version of it take it to the salt lake and do like a high speed version and then you can try and sell it for eighty thousand dollars later oh well that's the thing so it's a push rod engine and there's a push rod class in a lot of these yeah um land speed record classes. Right. that could do a thing that's not a bad idea that's actually that'd be fun i'd you be should, into that you should earmark that you should get a taste of that action all right call me bmw when you guys do this yeah, please thank daddy you. daddy gets a taste daddy gets a taste the, the minister of brap needs a little brap i was gonna say the minister of motorcycles gets a taste <laughs> Gets a taste um so yeah interesting things going on in the industry i will be very keen to see where that all goes uh just a quick shout out nikki hayden name to the ama hall of fame very deserving. That's Very happy to deserving. see that. Um, five other uh, motorcyclists were also named along with him. It seemed like a good, a good class of inductees. So good on them. And uh, Shaheen, I think this is this is your time to shine like a diamond. Shine bright like a diamond. So Shaheen, I'm kind of a I'm like a bad dinner host. I this is our second episode, but I kind of. Fail to introduce you to our I, listeners. I do the same thing. Every, every time somebody comes to my house, I'm like, nah, I assume you guys know each other. Yeah. Move so I, I failed. I was raised by wolves. My mother disowned me, <laughs> and I will have to stay home for the new year. I bet Mama B will love you no matter what you Mama do. Mama B's love is unconditional. It is true. She's um, she's one of those lady. people that looks really good in plaid. She loves plaid. Uh, she looks good in it. She, she loves it well. Christmas time because she gets to dress up in Let's so see. much plaid. <laughs> it's like walking around. I don't know. Like it's. I don't even know. I don't know how to describe that. I'm like shell shocked right now. There's so much plaid. <laughs> but Christmas Wonderland, Mama B's house. I want I want to take a minute to let you tell our listeners all about yourself because we're about to lean pretty heavily in your motorcycling expertise, and you're about to drop some knowledge on some fools. And I want people to know why you're such a big deal. So so tell me like really quickly, you know how you got into motorcycling. And then how you got into the motorcycle industry? So I got into motorcycling uh, just like most everybody. I, I absolutely love motorcycles. I've, I've known about motorcycles since I was a tiny little kid in Iran. My, my dad used to ride bikes before I was born and like go jumping on his Ameri- you know, his uh, Yamaha dirt bike that he still talks about. So that's sort of been a thing that's always been in the back of my mind since growing up. And when I moved to America and had this crazy onslaught of colors and you know, choices and motorcycles and cars, it just made my passion grow bigger and bigger with it. I didn't get to start riding until much, much later in life, uh, unlike most people around here. But 
Um, I entered the industry in 2005. My intention was to go to school and become a motorcycle mechanic. I wanted to kind of open my own shop and be like this, you know, speed shop for motorcycles to make race bikes and stuff like that. I've, I've always loved that concept of taking, you know, something stock and making it better, not just better looking, but better performing. Although I love gold wheels. If anyone's listening, you, yeah, gold we, we think we know from the last, I episode. love gold wheels. I want to, you probably... made that, you made your, your thoughts on that very clear. All right. Just want to make sure. So, <laughs> so I, um, I moved to Orlando, Florida where just don't, if you want to go, just don't. <laughs> But Epcot Center. But I know, and Mickey Mouse. And I met the love of my life, my, my wife, um, who is a great first wife, by the way. Um, <laughs> um, I'm on I, Team Ann, just for the record. Team Ann? Oh, is that how it works? Dang it to hell. I'm the one that feeds you. Um, so anyways, I was going to go to school, and when I went and did a little walk around at MMI Orlando, I was not that impressed. Um, and kind of walking around a local dealership, I realized that, you know, I, I needed to figure out something with my future. And as I was thinking about it, a sales guy walked up to me and tried to sell me on a bike I was sitting on, which happened to be a 2005, no, 2006, uh, brand new Speed Triple. It was the white with the blue lettering on it. Oh, yeah. Oh, dude, I love that bike. And it was before they changed the headlight. It was still the big round bug eyes, which I love. I know you're not a fan. Not but a fan. I, oh, God, I love that. So I understand that that is an iconic thing and I get it. And that's like a part of the jam. But visually, I do not enjoy it. Yeah, uh, it, it's it is it is outdated, but uh, maybe that's why I love it because it brings back memories. So I'm sitting on this bike. The guy's trying to sell me on the motorcycle. He's telling me all the wrong things. He's he's just he's going about the whole thing wrong. He's 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 trying a little too hard. I almost felt like I was at a used car dealership, and they're trying to like, hey, what can I do to get you on this car today? Right, right. Like, oh God, get the fuck out of my face is what you can do. So I kind of correct the guy a little bit. I, I I tell him a little bit about about the bike, and I kind of do my thing, just you know, talking as I like to do. Um. Luck would have it, the general manager of the shop was there and uh, liked what I was doing and said, hey, what do you do for a living? And I said, actually, currently I'm jobless and I'm about to go to a mechanic school, I think. And he said, I tell you what, I bet you could sell motorcycles here and make more money in one month than you would as a mechanic coming out of mechanic school for the first six months. I said, all right, whatever. I don't have a job. I'll start doing it. So I started working at a motorcycle dealership at, at a big uh, multi-line Japanese slash European dealership, uh, selling motorcycles and very quickly, you know, got, got into the managerial side of it. And so I've been in the retail side of motorcycles for 13 plus years and wow. I've seen a lot of good. I've seen a lot of shit and everything in between. And it's, it's been probably some of the best times of my life and some of the worst. Uh, and, and so what I want to do is, kind of go over what you should do as a buyer to make this buying experience of a motorcycle more enjoyable because it's supposed to be enjoyable. You're not buying a car, you're buying a motorcycle. You're buying a thing that is going to create good memories for you and good times for you and potentially make some really good friends. So so just to, just to clarify, you've been on the dealer side as a salesman, yep. as a finance manager, yep. as an enthusiast, riding on the track, riding off-road, riding on the street, on the flat streets of Florida to the windy roads of Oregon. That's right. And everything in between. I've I've ridden almost all of this country on two wheels. I, tr I try to do one big ride a year. What's in your garage right now? Right now, there is a 2017 Ducati drink, Multistrada Enduro. It's the Lucky Explorer. 
Uh, I believe you did a little quick blurb on it on, on your did. A&R. I did not get the cease and desist from MV Augusta. That was someone else. That was someone else. That wasn't even me. That was the dealership because yeah. MV Augusta, which by the way, they own the Kajiva brand. Well, that's the thing. So going going back to where we're talking about, MV Augusta is using the Kajiva brand to do their dirt bike electric right. bike play that's right. coming in. So that's interesting. So my, my bike looks like uh, the old 1993 Kajiva Elephant 900 Paris Dakar race bike. I wanted a very specific look, and Mark over at Moto Corsa, which is the dealership, Ducati dealership here in Portland, Oregon, he set it up beautifully for me. So it's uh, it's a very unique bike, and it's got a lot of online views. If you if you so much as do a Google search for Multistrada Lucky Explorer, the photography is amazing. Yeah, you know the photographer was a guy. He's an amateur dude by the name of Jensen Josef, a uh, very very. Uh, Very, underrated guy, I think. Yeah, yeah, knows how to swing a lens, among, sure among other things. <laughs> hey. Hey. Um, so I got, I've got the multi. It's my daily tour, uh, uh, tour rider. Uh, I rode it today. It's 41 degrees outside, and uh, it's just comfortable. It does the job. Parked right outside my garage. Parked right outside the garage, looking good out there. Sorry, I didn't have room for you in my garage. <laughs> Your garage is the happiest garage I've ever seen. Pardon. There is a forerunner. And Don't like, tell people what's in my garage. There is a lot of gold in there. Oh my god! The address Ugh. is sixteen hundred uh, Gold Street. Gold Street. <laughs> Gould. Um, so, what else? Tell me what else is in your garage, real quick. Uh, there is a two thousand and three Ducati nine 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 S, which is my track bike, track only. Doesn't have lights. Doesn't have nothing. Uh, and then there is a two thousand and eighteen Alta uh, EX, the dual sport one. It's got the lights. So that's all I've got, plus a couple of bicycles, which are all the all the toys, all the toys. So. Let's fix the motorcycle dealership experience. So we're going to look at it from the customer side. You sent me some bunch of notes and stuff that, so we'll walk through it. Um, I think ultimately what I'm trying to do here is cut out the stress of buying a motorcycle. It should not be stressful for you, especially in this day and age where there is so much information at the tips of your fingers every day as you go through your phone and look at cat memes. Well, I think that's that's huge. Like I was going to, before we jump into it, I think that's the number one thing that that dealerships kind of get wrong. I don't even know if it's like de- the fault of dealerships. It's just like the model of like the way our business works. Like I, I kind of get hung up on the idea that why do we sell motorcycles like we sell cars? Like it seems really obvious. Like they're vehicles, they go right. on the road, they get regulated by the DMV and NHTSA and the EPA. Like so there's like obvious similarities, but like not really because cars, at least in the United States, cars are transportation. Yep. Motorcycles are recreation though. Like motorcycles should be sold the same way we sell volleyballs and yeah. like tennis rackets or skis. and skis yep. and all these other things. Because that's what they are, really. That's it. And so I have a little bit of an issue with the dealership model as it exists. Like, I think it needs to like 2.0 itself and understand like, okay, in a world where we can buy things online in like less than a, like I, I totally impulse bought a book the other day. It took me 13 seconds because Amazon makes it so flippin' oh, yeah. easy to do it. And I don't even know, like if I really want to read that book, but like I had this idea, like oh, I'm going to read that book. It's the, it's the same guy that wrote the, the Martian. Oh, it's got a book ooh, called Artemis. I want to read that. You got yeah. so, Maybe I'll read it before you read it. Yeah, I'll take it home tonight. There we go. <laughs> Uh, shows up tomorrow on Amazon. I mean, that's the thing. It shows up then the next day, and it's it's so easy. And like that's the part of me where like the motorcycle industry is kind of lo- lost out, where it's like, okay, well, buy- the buying experience is so different than what it used to be, say, 10, 20, 30 years ago. The, the criteria and how we buy things is different. We're buying things with credit instead of cash. The, the expectations are different between the generations. Like, you can buy stuff online. You can buy stuff in person. So, like, I have a very 
interesting perspective on what's going here. So I want to I want to dive into that with you at some point in this conversation, Shaheen. But maybe we should structure this out a little bit better. I think that's a pretty important thing to talk about too, because buying a motorcycle is going to have two sides to it, right? There's the customer's point of view and the dealership's point of view, and they both need work. The customer is the easiest part of this, I think. Okay, I mean, I'm, I'm curious to see to, to see that because, like, I'm I'm of the opinion that. Customers are going to be customers. Like, I don't think you can change customers. Like, we can give tips and we can give tricks to, like, our listeners on how, like, they can make their buying experience better. But, like, at the end of the day, like, I don't think you're going to change the the customer that comes into the dealership and tries on all the jackets and then goes and buys it online. Because I think that's just, like, you're trying to fight the reality of, like, hey, we buy a lot of stuff online now. And, you know, at the end of the day, I am price sensitive. If, if it's $100 more at my dealership, you know, if, like, that $400 jacket it's $400 jacket at the dealership and it's $300 online. Guess where I'm going to go buy it? So that's an interesting thing that you bring up because I've always sort of argued with customers on this in that you may save some money buying it online, but the thing you ought to think about is that this dealership that you're paying a little bit of premium to have around are the same group of people who are going to take care of you later on if something happens. If the shit hits the fan and you need somebody to come pick your motorcycle up because it picked up a nail or it got sideswiped by some idiot that was driving and it was just parked on the street, those are the people that are going to take care of you. Amazon's not going to come pick up your bike. So yet. Well, not yet anyway. So in in, in the day, you know, in the place we live in, the thing that motorcycles have in common in cars is pretty small. It's it's the DMV stuff like you said. And then the service that you need afterwards. Yes. Which is very important. And so that that service takes a dealership to to handle. Now, is the model going to change in the future where the sales side of it is not so uh, heavy and the dealership's not so reliant on its uh, survival? Maybe. But for time being, what we have is a dealership structure that has a parts department and apparel department, which typically are intertwined together, a sales department, uh, which is new bikes, used bikes, and then a service department that takes care of everything. And that is probably the toughest part of any dealership to be in. And uh, those are the guys that, you know, and and gals that take care of you when you go in there. So I think it's worthwhile to pay a little bit more money. Now, can you still save money? I'm not saying just go in there and accept what they're telling you you should buy it for. You can say, hey, I found this thing online for $50, $100 cheaper. And chances are they can either meet that price or meet you somewhere in the middle that you both are happy. The dealership's not losing money and they're retaining you as a customer. Okay, let, let's let's table that for a second because I want to I want to do this in like in a slightly more structured sort of way. Let's talk about what we need to do before we go buy a motorcycle. All right, this is an important word: research. You got to do your research, and that and that doesn't mean just. It's a scary world out there when you go online. When you do research online, a lot of people tend to fall into the rabbit holes that are online forums and Facebook pages where. Jim Bob, who's written a, a you know GSX 1100 10, 15 years ago, is going to try and tell you what bike's the right bike for you. That's not what I'm talking about with the research. You could, at the very least, find out what kind of motorcycles are out there and what's going to fit your riding style. So that's the beginning point. And remember, you can walk into a dealership and talk to a good sales guy, and that person can really direct you the right direction because ultimately, they want you to succeed. Because if you succeed, you're going to come back and buy more bikes from them. If they, if they mislead you and you're angry about the whole process, you're not going to come back. So there are dealerships that do this wrong, but there are way more that do it right. And those are the ones that you walk in and you find out that there is an enthusiast that happens to sit on the other side of the table from you selling you a bike. So you can ask that person all the right questions. Like, 
if you're a new biker, what's the right bike for you? Uh, you know, what's the, if you're a biker that already knows everything, you already know everything and you're going to just shoot the shit with this guy anyways, but ask him, don't be afraid to ask questions. That's the biggest thing that most people are afraid of dealerships. They think that that person sitting on the other side of the table is just there to grab money from you. And while that is somewhat true, their ultimate job is to make sure you are a repeat customer. Yeah, and I would I would say if you're a dealership or if you're a dealer or a sale a salesperson at a dealership, I should say like you need to know your stuff too. Like, and I think that's like the burden. Like, if you're a big multi line dealer, like, oh yeah, it's hard for me to keep all the different specs of the bike straight. You know, across the eleven or twelve brands that are major players in the industry right. and all that stuff. Like, I often have to go back to a, a crib sheet or a note sheet or look things up. But um I think there there does have to be a certain level of like if you're a, a dealer or if you're a salesperson like you need to be an expert in what you're selling. Absolutely. And, and that's because like at the end of the day like that's that's the value added that you're giving the customer that walks into your door. Yep. Because if you if a customer does know more than you, like you you failed in my opinion. Which happens a lot by the way because you as a customer imagine you're in the market for let's say a naked superbike, right? Yes. So you're looking at uh, an Aprilia Tuono or you're looking at say a Monster 1200R. So any bike in that in that region, you might have brought it down to like three or four motorcycles and you're going to spend a lot of time every yes. night and at work doing a lot of research. So you're going to become a subject uh, matter expert on those particular bikes. So you walking into there and knowing more about those bikes because you've done so much homework is not unrealistic. It happens all the time. And my suggestion to any sales guy, if you don't know the answer, don't fucking make it up. It's it's such a turnoff. It immediately loses any uh, you know level of comfort that the customer has in you because they know you're lying to them. They know the answer already. I agree with you, but with the caveat of the dealer should still be informed. Like I, I think you're absolutely right. Like if I'm if I'm going to go buy a, a new motor, like I just bought this Kramer, right? So I did a ton of research on Kramer. I talked to Joe at Kramer USA. I, I you know, looked at the articles that my colleagues have written. Um, I talked to Zach Quartz and Ari. Oh, they, yeah. got, they got a chance to write it before I did, like a couple years. I think they were probably the first guys in the U.S. to, to get to do that. You know, I did I did my homework, and and I'm informed, and I'm, I'm, in, I'm empowered as a buyer or whatever it is. And that's fair. But if I walk into a dealership, I want to at least talk to someone that is my equal in that knowledge. Like if you're a dealer or if you're a salesperson, like you have so many tools at your disposal, like in terms of access to the manufacturer, mm -hmm. tech specs, you should know like, Hey, what was the R and D of this bike? He was building it. What's it, how's it fit in the market? What's going on in this segment? What are sales like? What are, what are the trends? And like, ideally you've, you've ridden this bike already before. So you'd be like, Oh yeah, it pulls like a freight train up to, you know, 6,000, <laughs> but there's nothing above seven, seven grand and kind of tapers off or, Hey, it handles really well in the corners and it does this and does that. Like the value added for me in a dealership is that you get to go tell me your firsthand knowledge, your firsthand experience on the motorcycle that I want to go purchase this, this big expensive thing that I want to go make a, an investment in. And and give me information that I can't just pull off of Google, that I can't pull off like a website like Asphalt Absolutely. Rubber or some motorcycle forum or some review that I found on Google or some Joe Schmo on Reddit or Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. Like you're you're like a primary source of information, not a secondary source. That's right. And to be that, and that's the value added for me. Like, why should I go to a dealership? Because I'm gonna go get information from a primary source. This yeah. is someone that's been trained by the OEM, they're an expert on this brand, they're an expert in the motorcycle industry, and they're going to drop knowledge on my ignorant customer ass. So that's a that's a really fair and valid expectation to have, I think. Now, here's the problem with the industry. Uh, the, the information that a dealership personnel has 
is gotten the same way that you and I get our information. There is no outlet for them to give them all that extra information. So this is a call to arms to all the manufacturers and dealers to to better educate yeah. your people. I lay that 100% at the manufacturer's door, at their feet. And I get, truthfully, a good chunk of my readers on Asphalt and Rubber are dealers. Our, oh, yeah. deal, our salespeople in the dealership that are people in that sphere. And they go like, I learn about stuff about my company from you. And that's wrong. Like you yeah. should be putting me out of business on that. I shouldn't be, <laughs> I shouldn't be breaking news on re- recalls that, that dealers don't know about. Like that was an issue for a long time. I actually had an OEM call me up and say, Hey, can you stop publishing information about recalls? Because like I'm getting angry dealerships, you know, calling me, asking me what's going on about this. And I'm not ready to talk about it. I'm like, no, no, no. One public information Two, you should be informing your dealers better than that. Your yeah, you dealers shouldn't, shouldn't, you shouldn't be, be learning upset about that somebody else is doing your job. You should do your job. You shouldn't be upset that that I'm publishing a recall that you have gotten around to telling your dealership about. They should learn about it from from you, not me. And that's not my fault that they're not. I agree, one hundred percent. That that is a that is a big thing that the industry needs to work on in order to kind of you know go to the next level. If you're going to evolve, you have to do. You have to not just make motorcycles and drop them off at the dealership and go. Good luck. Here's here's the most important point. And we probably should front load this at the beginning. <laughs> From my perspective, the most important thing about a motorcycle dealership is that is the point of contact that a OEM, a brand, a manufacturer has with their customer. Absolutely. Now it's a little messed up that that's not that's like a third party in this. It's like it's like a third wheel in the relationship. Right. But that's your point of contact. Like you should empower and prepare and regulate and you know all these things. Your dealers, because that's who's going to touch the customer. If, if if a customer has a bad experience at a dealership, they're going to attribute that to a certain extent that dealership, but they're also going to attribute it to the brand. If I go in yeah. and have a, a horrible experience buying my BMW at BMW Auto Mall, Washington, <laughs> then that's going to reflect on my opinion of BMW Motorrad. You know, it's interesting you say that. I think maybe for you that's the case, but I've noticed for most people when they have a bad experience and because they can't get the information from a dealership that they expect the dealership to have, they don't blame the manufacturer. They immediately blame the dealer because that is the face that they're dealing with. Like, yeah, most people don't know the business inside business of motorcycles or cars for that matter. All you know is I'm going to this place to get this thing and get this experience and I'm not getting it. Counterpoint though, how many, I can think of a couple smaller, let's say Italian boutique brands (laughs) who have struggled because of the lackluster uh, dealership experiences that they have. And is that the brand or is that the dealership? I think think it's both. I think that's fair. Uh, And again, the dealerships have the way of, they have to get creative with how they get their information. Uh, You know, they're they're sort of in the same shoes as you and I are when it comes to getting that information. And that's what sucks. So that's where I agree with you, where I think the manufacturer needs to step up their game and just give the dealers as much power as possible in being able to answer questions. Because the cool news here is, unlike a car dealership, a motorcycle dealership can be like a clubhouse. And it is more often than not. People go there on Saturdays before they go on a ride and you know they want to hang out with those people because they've built a lot of rapport. You don't do that at a car dealership. Even if you buy a super cool car, you still don't go hang out at the local Ferrari dealership if you're that rich. They don't want you there. I mean, if they had like cable, maybe. Uh, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> no, I think you're absolutely right. The dealers that I see that are the most um, successful are the ones that have created a community around their dealership. Right. Um, they're either hosting track days or bike nights or they're doing rides or they're doing some sort of event. And like, not only does that bring traffic inside their dealership, but it also makes the connection to the dealership more than just a transaction. Exactly. And, and like, that's at the end of the day, like, transactional relationships suck. 
moving on from doing the research and what's, what's the next important thing before you even step foot in a dealership? So I think you, this is a really important thing and it might be kind of a little bit of an ego strike against, uh, let's, let's call them our, our male buyers. Cause that's typically the, the people that go in, but it doesn't matter who you are. If you have someone that's in your life, that's going to help you make this decision, you need to have this conversation. And before you have this conversation with that person, you need to do again, some research on what kind of budget do you have? Can you afford to pay for this thing? Whether it's monthly or lump sum upfront, how's your credit? You should know your credit before anybody else does. When somebody walks into a dealership and goes, I don't know what my credit is, you've slowed down everything. Now you're bringing stress over there because you may know what your credit is and you know it's not that good, but instead of saying my credit's not good, you're going to feign ignorance and you're just wasting everybody everybody's time. So if you know your credit's not good, be prepared for a couple of things. A, probably no loan at all because motorcycle loans, unlike car loans, because again, these things are luxury items, they're super expensive. Uh, it might cost you, I don't know, 0.9% to buy a Ford car, but you're going to walk into a dealership to buy a motorcycle with that same credit and you're going to get 5 or 6% APR thrown right at you. That's just the nature of the beast here in America. It sucks, but it's the truth. Now, some banks will have specials from time to time and, and dealerships and manufacturers are okay at telling you about these things. They have to legally tell you about it, so they're not going to hide it from you. But again, do a little bit of research. Find out what your money situation is. That's really, really important to know because what's the point of going into a dealership, spending hours of your time looking at bikes, apparel, hardware, and then only to find out, oh, I can't buy this thing. It's way outside of my my range or I simply don't have the credit for it. So be honest with yourself about that one and have that conversation at the house that you live in with the people that are going to help you make that decision. So if you have a partner or a wife or a husband that that needs to give you a thumbs up about it, have this conversation. Don't let it be the final thing when you've fi- you know spent all this time and only to go, oh, I got to go talk to my better half to find out if I can buy this thing. Well, okay, cool. Now you've wasted everybody's time, including yours. And even though you think these salespeople are there to at your behest, they're not. They have way more important things to do than just sit there and hang out with you all day long while you're trying to decide whether your better half is going to tell you yes or no. So figure all that stuff out. Uh, so research first, talk about the numbers, talk about the money, be honest with yourself about it. And then, and this is going to be important. Go ahead. You, you look like you want to say something. I was just going to say- You in the back. What do you got? I, I was just curious because I don't know if you're going there or not, but I was thinking like when you were talking about the finance part, like there's a lot of, uh, at least in the US and, and I've seen it in the UK as well, there's a lot of like promotional finance things. Yep. Like just looking at the time of year, when to buy like end of year. So it's interesting, right? There, Because like think of America. America is a very big country and and each- Half of it has different weather patterns and end of year and blah, blah, blah. Every company has their own fiscal end of year. And and you'll usually see dealerships really pushing it hard when that happens. So, yeah, again, you have to do the research. Um, you know, People aren't going to just tell you for free, oh, this is the good time to buy it. Ultimately, I think every dealership is going to want to sell you a vehicle. So there shouldn't be a time of year that stops you or, or gets you to get off your butt and go buy the thing. If you want to buy the thing, they're going to sell it to you. Um, yes, there are times that, uh, you know, dealerships will try and give you a better deal. Ducati, for instance, end of summer, right? I was going to say, like, if you're going to buy a new Ducati, August is the time to do it in the U S because that's when the books close for, for yearly sales. And if a dealership is trying to make their numbers or hadn't trying to hit a quota, they're going to be doing some deals in August. Exactly. So, but I guarantee you, you can get those deals even in April. 
You just have to be smart about it. If you if you know exactly what you're looking for and how much you're looking to buy it for, as long as it's not unreasonable, they'll work with you. Because even in August, when they have to meet those numbers, no dealership will lose money to sell you a vehicle. It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make mathematical sense. Unless the, unless the manufacturer has given them some money to play with, and a lot of times dealerships won't tell you about that because it's extra income on their part, that's the only way they can dip into it. Unless they're just crazy, stupid, uh, desperate to sell a vehicle, which I've seen happen, it. But it's not. That's not the money maker. That's not something in my 13 plus years of doing business. That's not something that I saw happen that often. Um, so, yes, there is time to buy one. I, I know for Ducati, it's you know August is a good time of year. But imagine you live in the upper hemisphere of America. Like you're gonna buy a bike close to September, and then the weather turns to shit. So you've wasted your entire summer of and riding time value to money to that. That's actually an interesting analysis, but yeah. And that's, and that's the thing that we always tried to push people with here. Now imagine you live on the other side of the country, like Florida, where I live for a while or, or Southern California, the time of year that dealerships have a hard time selling the most is going to be July and August. It's so freaking hot. Nobody wants to ride. It's hard to get people to come out on their motorcycles. So like, you know, early spring fall, that's when it's really happening. Uh, and, and so again, that it's kind of difficult to make an analogy of when is a good time to buy because it depends on where you live in the country. It does. I think there's kind of a universal element of when the outgoing model year bikes are still on the floor and the new year model bikes are about to arrive. Yeah. There's maybe a little pressure because of flooring. Absolutely. And, and, and that uh, brings up a really good, uh, uh, point. I think if you're looking to save a lot of money buy last year's bike. Every dealership, I don't care who they are, they always have something left over. There's always a bike that got overlooked or didn't want to get sold or something happened with it, right? It just it just kept getting pushed to the back and it's got a ton of dust on it because it sits in their you know storage warehouse. They will bend over backwards to sell that thing to you. So if you're looking, if you're money motivated and saving the money is more important than getting the newest, greatest, baddest thing, buy that one. They have it. Ask for it. They'll sell it to you. They'll be so happy to sell it to you. It's not even funny. Excuse me. They'll, they'll throw in additional gear and they'll throw in additional accessories to make sure that you are covered and you're you know willing to buy this thing so do that it's okay to buy last year's motorcycle it's still going to blow your mind probably pretty often yeah i would say with the exception of like the thing that's like the latest and greatest and coming out um you know obviously the the previous year's model is going to be the the not latest and greatest thing right like that's not very common you know nine times out of ten like not that many changes happen year to year maybe refinements here and there but it's funny my my last couple of months at the ducati dealership here in portland you know the v the v4 came out the the panigale v4 came out and everybody who was looking at super bikes suddenly started looking towards that thing well it's pretty rad well it is super rad right but the 1299 that it was that it replaced was an equally mind-blowing motorcycle to the average rider not all of us are Jensen Beeler. Not all of us know how to ride like that. So when you put me on a 1299. <laughs> I like that I am the standard. <laughs> hey, man, in my little world, you're up there. I mean, I've ridden with you and you blow my mind sometimes. But I'm, I'm sort of lucky to be surrounded by a bunch of very uh, amazing motorcyclists. But the average rider, the average buyer is just that. It's just that. They're just the average dude, right? And they they have saved up some money and they've they've had the talk and they've done the research and they found out that the V4 is the one because it's the newest, greatest, latest, awesome thing. And if we convinced them to get their legs over a 1299 and take it around the block, they would come back and their eyes would be like saucers. Like, holy crap, that thing's unbelievable. And that is the case with almost any motorcycle. It Pound for pound, it's going to blow your mind no matter what you end up riding. But if you're just buying it as a status thing, then prepare to pay some money for it. 
If you want to buy the newest, latest, greatest, it's going to cost you newest, latest, greatest money. That's fair. So, so we've done our research into the bikes before we go. We've done some research into our personal selves and what we can afford and what we can buy and what we're willing to put in the garage. And we're getting ready to go to the dealer to make our purchase. Walk me through it. All right. So you've, you've basically done the thing, right? You've picked out the motorcycle you want to buy. You've probably already kind of dealt with the sales guy and figured out the price you want to get. You need to put some time aside. Anytime somebody walks into a dealership and they're like, hey, I got to be at a dinner in like half an hour. I think the answer should be, okay, then see you tomorrow because this is going to take away from your experience. Remember, you're not buying at Amazon. You're buying at a place that is going to try and outfit you as best as possible for this experience. And buying a motorcycle is like buying a canoe. You're not just going to buy the motorcycle. You have to buy you know, all the stuff that goes along with it. So you buy a canoe, you got to get the paddle, you get the PFD and blah, blah, blah. So when you buy a motorcycle- That's you, personal flotation device for those of you right, that PFD. don't go yachting. Ooh, I like it. You're, you're, you're on point. And that's what I love about you, Jensen. So you, <laughs> you sell a lot of boats, Shane. I know what a, I know a, I know a what PFD you know when I sailing? see one. You, you act like you were a world-class sailor once. Were you? Yeah, I was. <laughs> not world-class, not national. Again, in my world, you're national. way up there, man. I'm putting you on Are a weird little Are we counting Canada pedestal. as international? It is. No. I mean, you have to have a passport to go through Canada's now. where we shoot down the Russian missiles. That's where they land. That's why Canada's there. Oh, is this the flat earth thing because they're above sorry, us? Canada. Because <laughs> no, they come over the North Pole. That's the shortest route. And then we shoot our missiles to shoot them down, and they rain down and their rains. atomic badness all over the Canadians. Maybe that's how they get that cool aura Canada's light. just a buffer zone to Russia. That's, it, my, that's my point. I mean, it is now that the North Pole is kind of melting. That's a whole other story. That's a whole different story. And I don't know if it's true. <laughs> I heard there's some there's some conjecture that it might not be. Yep, a whole different story. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I don't I don't even know where we're talking about. We're going to we're going to the dealership. So you're going to set aside time. This is going to be important. It's going to take probably about an hour and a half to two hours minimum to buy a motorcycle. Why? Because just signing the paperwork is going to take twenty to twenty five minutes. That's just the paperwork side. And that's the last thing you end up doing. You got to get... Just for comparison, that's about the same amount of time I budget after I go to Taco Bell. Which is fair. I mean, think about it. You've had two Burrito Supremes and you're going to need at least 25 minutes or so to yourself to repent. I look at it, it's 25.7 minutes per crunchy taco that I eat. But you eat like four. Yeah. Holy crap. What do you do with yourself? Netflix. Oh, okay. Fair. Wait, do you have a TV in the bathroom? Not yet. I think you should invest. Yeah. iPad. Never use my iPad. Oh, my God. That's a shitty iPad. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I'm going to wash my hands before I leave here. Yeah, that touchscreen. <laughs> you just don't touch it. Not clean. Sanitized, Jensen. Sanitized. An amazing immune system. <laughs> it's always on point. So you're going to have to have time. Uh, you're you're going to want to walk in there and have a chat, really quick chat with your parts and accessories person to make sure that your bike has the minimum stuff like frame sliders. That's such cheap, easy and you know insurance against the stupid things like knocking the bike over in the garage. Please tell me who hasn't done that. I'm looking at you, Johnson. Yeah. Okay. Fair. I mean, we've all done it, man. It shit happens. It's gravity. It's sitting on two wheels. So, you know, again, that takes time. And then you're going to want to talk to the apparel people even if you've already talked to them to finalize the thing you want to get, the right helmet. Even if you've got a ton of helmets, every time you buy a new motorcycle, you're thinking, hey, it's time to get, you know, something special to, to commemorate this event. I don't know. That sounds, that's very salesman. That's, I don't know if I agree with that. But 
I'll, I'll throw you a lifeline on this one because one of the things that we we kind of talked about before the show is I think a very valuable point on how most financing agreements do like what, like 120% of the yep. value. Yep. So being able to lump in, if you needed a new jacket, if you needed a new helmet, if you wanted to get frame sliders or an exhaust or a windscreen or whatever, that you can lump that into the loan payment that you're right. getting from your, your financer. And I think that's yeah, really that's, powerful I mean, to know that banks you can will do, do that. that. Banks will do that to kind of cover extra costs, right? Like taxes and tag and, you know, DMV fees. A lot of times dealerships are going to want to sell you things like warranty and gap coverage. If you don't know what gap stands for, it's guaranteed asset protection. It's to make sure that just in case you're one of those people, which happens more often than not, that doesn't put any money down on this loan. If something happens and that bike is a total loss, the difference between what the insurance company will pay out and what your actually actual loan right. dollar amount is is covered by that gap coverage. So that's really worth explaining. So let's say like I go out and I buy a fifteen thousand dollar motorcycle. I I sign all the paperwork. I get the title. It's now mine. I'm right. rolling it off the dealership lot. That bike before I've even turned a wheel is probably worth twelve thousand. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's fair. fair. So I've already taken a $3,000 hit on that. And let's say I didn't put any money down, so yep. I'm financing the full fifteen. I go a mile down the street, total that bike. My bank, or not my bank, my insurance company is going to cut me a check for $13,000 minus my deductible. Yep. More, more than likely. Mm -hmm. So I'm out of, I'm, let's say if I have a $500 deductible, I'm shit out of luck on $2,500, which is what the gap insurance would cover. Yeah, and most gap insurance contracts cost between five to 800 bucks, and it covers that difference. And the difference is huge. I mean, that difference is, from what I've seen, usually in the thousands. I mean, to be fair, let me just like raise my hand yeah. and just say that you I think- You in the class in the back? I think, I think insurance and warranties are for people that can't do math because at the end of the day, yep. you're betting against yourself. Absolutely. And that's just my personal opinion. Some people are a little bit more accident prone or need a little <laughs> bit more security in your life. I like to I like to take a little bit of a gamble. Not to say I don't have insurance or warranties, but life happens, man. Life has a way of happening, and and it's just it's understand funny. that life insurance is literally you betting the insurer that you're gonna die sooner than later. I mean, and you know that's the only way. If you we keep riding motorcycles, deal. we're kind of juggling yeah, a little here. It's, and so it kind of brings me to the point of warranty. This is probably going to be the most sales guy-ish thing I'll ever tell yeah, you. Yeah, I think we're going to disagree on this. Get ready for it. I Phrase think, yourself. Okay, here's my take. Buy the warranty. And the reason no. I say buy the warranty is this. Typically, warranty doesn't cost that much. It's it's usually around 1000 bucks, depending on what kind of vehicle you're on. If you're on a Harley, they're super expensive. If you're on a Japanese OEM bike, they're pretty darn cheap. The sum of all the parts on a motorcycle are worth so much more than the actual motorcycle itself. And that shit that can break down will break down. This thing's this thing's going to be out in the elements if you're like me and you're riding it all the time. Stuff falls apart. It's, it's a machine ultimately built by a man and some robots, right? And stuff will break down. And the things that typically fall apart are going to be electronic bits, suspension bits, you know, the, and they seem small to you, but nowadays mechanics don't fix little parts. They have to replace the whole thing that that part, you know, is, is a part of. So if you're looking at an ABS module, for instance, they have to replace the entire thing. So you go from like a $50 part to an actual $2,000 full ABS system. They're, they're not allowed to fix them. If the bike is under warranty, that whole thing has to be replaced. So if you don't have that warranty, if it's, if it's outside of that realm, you still have to replace that thing. And it would cost you thousands of dollars versus having made a one-time payment of a couple of hundred bucks or even a thousand dollars that'll cover you for four, five, six, seven years, depending on what manufacturer you're looking at. And nowadays, most of these warranties don't have a deductible. 
So you can just go out there and say, hey, I'm riding the bike the way I'm riding the bike, as long as it's not on a racetrack, boo. And if something breaks on it, 99% of the time, they'll cover that stuff without you having to pay any extra money out of pocket. So you don't have to be like, cool, I have to make monthly payments on this thing. I got to make insurance payments on this thing. And now some bullshit broke on and I got to make payments on that thing as well. It's just from my perspective, from having been behind the scenes, I will always tell you this, every dealership, no matter what the hell kind of car or motorcycle you're buying, will have bikes and cars in their shops being fixed. And if you look at most of those things getting fixed, they're not that old. Shit breaks. So if you buy the warranty, good on you. If you don't buy the warranty, it's your money. Spend it how you want to do it. But I guarantee you, if you're going to hold on to that bike long term, you're going to want to use it. Okay, here, here's my rebuttal. One, the insurance writer has already done the math. And they say like, okay, what is the average cost of repair under warranty? Right. Under our, under our what is it, like a third party or extended warranty? And two, what is the probability of that happening in, in terms of incidents? And they sit there and they go like, hey, the average cost is $1,000. It happens one in 10 times. So anything over $100 in cost for a warranty, we're going to make money on it. So if it's 110 bucks, they're going to make 10 bucks on every warranty they sell over the long run, right. over the aggregate. Right. So they've already done the math, like the what we would call an expected value in 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 like game theory or or in, or in business. They've already done the expected value on on that warranty and they're charging a premium to you on it. So I already have an issue with it right there. It's like, well, if you were just to like let the wind blow, it's going to be cheaper for you probably from a probability perspective than if you bought the warranty. Two, if you've got a if you're buying a motorcycle, I mean, most bikes now come with at least like a two-year warranty. Uh, Japanese bikes, one year. Some of them are three years if they're cruisers. Your European bikes are two years. So that's one to two. Yeah, one to three years. Um, and it's interesting, like the Japanese bikes, reputation for being better built, being right. more reliable, one-year warranty. I feel very comfortable with that. European bikes, two years. It's funny to see like average life of ownership for a motorcycle is like so low. 18 months or yeah. something stupid like right. that. So for me, it's like, why are you buying a warranty if you're not even going to own the bike for that long? And I haven't really seen in the used market uh, a third-party warranty or an extended manufacturer's warranty really adding anything to the the after-sale price. When you're like, hey, I want to unload this bike. Like, hey, but I bought a $1,000 warranty with it. Well, you're no, not going to get $1,000 right extra I mean, typically, for it. Typically, a dealership will tell you something along the lines of, hey, this will add value to your vehicle. I don't think value is monetary in that point. It's a... It's a chance of selling it quicker it, than the next guy. It's like a feather in the hat. Like if there's two bikes that are completely identical, completely different mileage, completely same rider, and one's got like another two years on the warranty and the other one doesn't, right? I'm probably not going to get anything price-wise different, but I can know which one I'm going to go buy. Exactly. But like at the end of the day, I'm kind of sitting there going like, I don't know. I Personally, I, from, I my think, from my experience, I've had bikes with no warranties or expired warranties break and it cost me, shoot, I mean, let's talk about my Husqvarna and the black <laughs> hole of money that that is like two three thousand dollars in motor stuff right but then on the flip side like i've had you know new new bikes where i had some warranty issues and like it's still covered covered under my manufacturer warranty and once you have an issue under warranty if that issue crops back up again out of warranty they're still on the hook because it's a pre-existing kind of condition it hasn't been remedied yet if it hasn't been remedied yet that's, right that's right the right then that's that's a big catch right there it's it's a big well, like, if I've got a bike in my garage that had an issue when it was in warranty, and that manufacturer is still on the hook for it. And every couple of years, I get to go, hey, guys, guess what you get to do? You get to spend another $4,000 diagnosing this problem because you haven't Better fixed it yet. Buying that damn thing they should have bought it back years ago. <laughs> yeah, so, I, think, I think you're right. I think there is a part of what you're saying that I agree with in that unless you're a long-term owner, 
yeah, there probably isn't much of a need for it. If you're going to be one of those 12 to 18 month owners, then chances are your bike's original manufacturer warranty will cover that bike for that term, right? What I'm trying to create is is someone that is going to buy a bike and is going to hold on to it for the long run. I'm probably a ter- terrible example of that. I've, I've owned close to 15 bikes in the last 10 years. And I keep going through them. And that's because I've been in the industry and I've been lucky enough to be able to buy it at a slightly more discount price than anybody else can buy it because that's one of the perks of working in the industry. We don't make a ton of money, but we get to at least try out these things that we love so much. But I am I will stand behind this all day long. I have seen the warranties get used and anytime they get used, the person who's bought it usually says something along the lines of, holy shit, I'm glad I bought that thing because this would have cost me a ton of money. Okay, so here's a, here's a good question for you. In your experience with these warranties, this is the thing that I always worry about because it feels like street insurance. How good would you say these companies are in honoring claims? Because my resistance would be like, hey, I don't want to spend $500 to $1,000 on a third-party warranty if when the day comes that like my bike blows up because of something stupid. Right. Uh, I'm going to be still SOL. They're going to like deny my claim right, and, right. and give me a hassle and take like six months to fix my stuff. So, so how good are, are these companies in your experience in, in taking care of their customers? So up until even five years ago, my answer would have been 50-50. But the lawsuit-friendly world that we live in right now has made it where these companies have had to get really tight and good about what they do. So now the ones that were shitty about it have either gone out of business or they've just fizzled away where the dealerships won't sell it to you. Because again, remember, a dealership is trying to create an experience for you where you're going to keep coming back to you. As they should be. As they should be, absolutely. So those bad warranty companies are gone. There there was a handful out there that that I would work with before that they were just horrible, absolutely terrible at doing their jobs. And we stopped working with them because the last thing I want is to you, for you to walk into my shop, into my office as the, as, you know, as the F&I guy and go, you motherfucker, you sold me the wrong thing and it's now not being covered. So I spent all this money with you and now I have to spend extra money for it and they won't cover this and they won't cover that. I don't want that. I don't want that any more than you want that. What I want is for you to walk in and go, I'm annoyed that this thing broke, but thank goodness I had this warranty and it's going to cover it. And here's the good news about the warranty. Let's say you buy it and you think you're going to be a long-term owner, but you want to get rid of the bike, let's say 16 months or 18 months or however many months, and there's still warranty left, cancel the warranty. You can get money back for that thing. You're not, it's not not finished when you sign for it. I think that's a good point. I think that's something a lot of people don't know that you can do. Oh yeah, most most anything is cancelable. I think the only thing you can't cancel is going to be if a dealership has, you know, like a prepaid maintenance deal. I don't love those deals so much. I think I stand with you uh, the way you feel about most warranties with the prepaid maintenance thing. How many miles are you riding this thing? How much maintenance are you going to do on it? If you're going to be like me and you're going to ride 16,000 miles a year, maybe it's worth it, but Still, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that you can do yourself that's pretty easy to do. Uh, on some of these bikes that are becoming more and more and more technologically advanced and, you know, you may not have the know-how and how to work on there, that's still not a maintenance thing. That's still a warranty thing. So t- talk to me fine print because I'm a guy that likes to go to the track day. I want to go buy a super bike. I'm going to go do 10 track days a year on it. How's my warranty claim going to stand up when on my 11th track day the engine blows up? So here's the... Here's the truth of it when it comes to track days. I think all warranties are null and void as soon as you say the word track day. Same goes with insurance. If you have a street bike and you have insurance on there with, let's say, State Farm, if you go to the track and you wreck that thing, 
State Farm is more often than not going to say, good luck, pal. You broke this thing on a track where you don't belong because they think you're racing. There's, yeah, you're, you're going to have a you're going to have a conversation and you're going to have to say certain things correctly Absolutely. for them to up, uphold your your claim. And you the, should be covered when you're on the track. If it's not a time to, and it's going to vary policy to policy. It's so I don't want to get like too much of a blanket. Yeah, thing, and that's but, crazy. You don't want to go too crazy into that thing. But from from my experience, if a warranty company found out that your motor blew up because you were doing a C group track day where you ride generally softer than you would on the streets, they're going to raise an eyebrow and go, "No thanks, not interested. You were on a track." Whereas you could be on your favorite stretch of road out in public going banana speeds because there's no cars around there and that motor will blow up on you and the insurance company, I'm sorry, the warranty company will say, yeah, cool, it was on the street. We'll take care of you. It's crazy to me. It's absolutely bonkers. And I've had so many arguments with the companies out there. A lot of them are becoming a little more open to this conversation. And I, <clears throat> and I think it's up to the dealership to convey the right message and not say, yeah, this is a race bike. So if you've got a super bike and you've put race plastics on there, guess what, man? That looks like a race bike now. But if you've got a super bike and it's still got all of its lights on there and something happens and you, let's say, take all the, you know, tape off the lights and make it look like your regular street bike, eh, you can have a conversation now. And a dealership might have a little bit of gray area to go, eh, it broke down. But I'm not here to tell you to lie to anybody. So technically, if the bike is on a racetrack, chances are the warranty company is going to go, nope. See, that's that that's just like one more like thing. Like, why am I spending this money then? But, you know, it's funny because when you look at a supercar or a super bike, what's the first thing they do to you in advertisements? Take it to the track, man. Yeah, take it to the fucking track. And what do you do? You take it to the track to do the same thing and something goes wrong and that same manufacturer that's showing you on their advertisements that this thing's supposed to go on the track goes, yeah, no, no, that was yeah. that wasn't a close course with a with a professional driver yeah. and we I'm just did it in that I'm still my car. fucking lawyer, though. Uh, you ought to, I think. And I think you probably have room for that. I don't know nearly enough about the laws you do, but there's probably some kind of a gray area there that you can go, no, 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 no. You guys said, and I did the thing you guys said. So... I still stand behind what I said with a warranty. I think you should get it. It doesn't cost that much money. And if you find out you're not using it, sell it. The warranty. Just cancel it. Call your dealership and go, I don't want this warranty anymore. The dealership doesn't want to do that. But guess what? They will not say no to you. They're legally not allowed to. Okay. So we've done our research. Before we went to the dealership, we go into the dealership. We go and we buy our bike. We're motorcyclists now. What's next? Go back to the dealership. Go there a lot. Get to know those people. They're they're. They're all a bunch of enthusiasts who are pretty much being overworked. So when they find a friendly face that comes in there and they know Jensen is this cool guy that likes to come by once in a while and bring some donuts once in a while and just shoot the shit with them. You're not just there to just buy something. Again, you're not just having transactions every time you go there. If you can do that, you're building a really cool uh, relationship and you're helping this dealership stay alive and do its thing. And you're, you're buying your parts there. You're buying your services there. You're buying your accessories there. And again, like I said way earlier, if you find that thing you want to buy for, for cheaper online, do the dealership a favor and point that out to them because chances are they can either match it or give you a good reason as why you should buy from them instead of someone online. The, everybody buys those parts for the same price. Now, there are certain things that some people pay less money for. Tires, for instance. If you're a mega online retailer, you probably are getting tires pound for pound cheaper than a dealership is because the dealership is buying dozens of them at a time, not thousands of them. So that's something to talk about. And quite frankly, most dealerships that I know don't make a lot of money on tires anyway. It's it's Their hope is that you're going to have them install the tire and they can make a little bit of money on labor. Well, that's the thing. I, I keep coming back to to value added. Like the dealers, for me, I see the dealer's number one role and dealer's number one 
competitive advantage, let's say, is the value add. It's like, yeah, are you going to give me the best price on tires? Maybe not, but you're going to be the, you have the opportunity to be the person that's going to mount and balance them and help me right. with my bike and help me pick out which tire is the right one for me and say, hey, like, I know you like running a, a 190.55, but, you know, maybe a 180.50 could be better on your bike or, or 255 or, or whatever that is. Right. And and kind of be like your your motorcycling sensei in a way, and be like, hey, let me let me impart some knowledge and some wisdom. It's the same thing with, I think, apparel, which is oh like a gosh, huge yeah. thing right now. Where you know we have so many people going online and buying apparel from from online retailers, but the, I think the the value is like being able to go into a dealer, try stuff on, have an apparel manager that knows their garments mm-hmm. and, be able to, and knows how to size you and be like, okay, yeah, you thought you were a size 52. Frankly, you're a size 48 because you have narrower shoulders and you have a smaller torso or you you carry it this way. Or yeah. I know that this brand is a couple sizes too big despite what it says on the label and get you into this. And actually, you should check out this jacket because the water protection on this is way better than the waterproofing on that one. Oh, yeah. You'll be able to spend like two more hours in the rain. And having like that that extra knowledge and being able to like personalize and tailor the services towards you is is huge. It's massive. It's it's one of the most important parts of it. First of all, most people size themselves wrong when it comes to buying apparel. Yes, you know, like a lot of people. I, I'm blown away by how many people I see wearing jackets that are like four sizes too big because they're trying to wear it the way they would wear a regular jacket that they were wear out. That's not the point of a motorcycle jacket. It's there to protect you. So you want it to be snug and you want it to be, you know, mobile where you can move around, but at the same time not rotating on your body. So yes, I agree 100%. You have to go back and you have to talk to these people. The other thing you should do, I think, is get active within your local motorcycle scene. Chances are if you live in a major city, there is either a handful of clubs, and I'm not talking like Sons of Anarchy type of clubs. I mean, if that's your thing, have at it. If you need a patch, get a patch. But there are probably riding clubs around you that are people that are track day riders, dirt bike riders, adventure riders, or just people that like to go to a local coffee shop and shoot the shit for an hour on a Saturday to get away from whatever. But get involved with these people because we are a tiny, tiny little portion of the population. And there's a lot of lawmakers who have no idea what it is we do and how it is we do it and why it is we do it. And to them, all they see is this thing that's dangerous and not safe. And while that is inherently true, we're not in it to just do wheelies in public and be loud and obnoxious and shitty. Are there people that do that? Absolutely. I was one of them when I was younger. That's because I was younger and stupid and somehow ended up surviving this whole thing. But... Ultimately, most of us are kind of mature and we want to see this thing that we do, this this lifestyle that we live, we want to see it flourish and do better. This is why we're talking about this. This is why we're talking about how to buy a motorcycle from a customer's perspective. And then I'm going to go later on and talk about as a dealer and a manufacturer, what I think should be done. I think that's a conversation that's had every time you and I talk and everybody that's in the industry talks about, because we don't want to see this thing fail. We want to see it do well. I think mostly because we're passionate about it and we love it, not because of any other rational reason, but it is what it is. So get involved. Get involved with your local scene. You don't have to get political about it. Just be out there. Ride around. You're going to find some of your best friends on motorcycles. I've always said that ever since I started riding motorcycles. Everyone that I know that's dearest to me has been pretty much because of motorcycles. Almost everybody in my life I've met because of motorcycles. And that's that's a big thing to say. I'm, you know, it's I'm a very social person and I'd probably make that happen more often than most people do. But I know a lot of people that would agree with that, I think. Yeah, I would agree. I think, um, I think, I think this is like one of those times where like, this might be a, a positive story about Facebook because I think one of the things that social media has done really well, especially Facebook with groups is to help connect 
motorcycles. Like I look just like in our Pacific Northwest area, there's so many cool dirt bike riding groups that are out there. There's so many cool uh, like coffee nights right. and you know rides and riding groups and like Pacific Northwest meetups. And then you've got all these track organizations and racing organizations that are using it. So like it's really easy now to get connected to people that have a similar passion that are doing the kind of motorcycling that you're doing. And, you know, quite frankly, like they're, if they're belonging to the group, they're belonging to like one of these social clubs, they want to meet you. So oh, it yeah. makes it really easy to be like, to like put your hands like, Hey, I'm the fucking new guy to the area. Who wants to like show me around where all the cool roads are. And you'll probably get like 10 people that be like, oh, yeah, yeah, there's right, a bunch of people who are, who are so excited. Yeah. I mean, some of them want to do it just to show off and, you know, validate themselves. But 99% of the time, again, we're just looking to like grow our group and make it where you're safe in what you do and you're, you know, you're protected in what you do. Like I started a coffee and bike night a year and a half ago and it started with like six of us and now during the season like 50 60 people show up so people are looking for that people are looking for that connection and what better way of doing it than on motorcycles it's amazing to see people kind of transcend you know any sort of political view or anything else and just say cool we're motorcyclists and this is the thing we have in common and it's a hell of a bond yeah i think there's a lot of good things and the more important thing and this kind of comes back to dealerships the ones that foster these sort of things you don't want a one-time customer. You nope. want a repeat customer. Absolutely. You know, the general rule of thumb with businesses, it's three times easier keeping a current customer than to create a new one. So you want to have these things that that make the industry in your area sticky, that make your dealership sticky. And I mean that in the sense of stickiness that people keep coming back to it. Right. That they don't they don't just like hit you and bounce off. They hit you and they stick to you. Yep. So having things like like a dealership that's welcoming, that's like a clubhouse that, you know, has engaging and fun and knowledgeable staff people that is engaged with, you know, rides and track days and coffee nights. Like those are all things that not only help a dealership, you know, keep customers and, and generate sales, but also help turn. This is like one of the most important things in my mind, help turn motorcycle owners Mm-hmm. into motorcyclists. I think that's perfectly put. Because I don't want someone just to like buy a bike, ride it for 18 months, decide that, oh, I couldn't find any friends or I don't like riding bikes or it's scary or it's dangerous or, you know, I spend too much money or blah, 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 blah. blah. I'm going to sell it. I'm going to go get a jet ski or whatever that is. <laughs> I want people to be like, oh, I rode a bike. And then I met like four other people that love riding bikes and we go ride bikes and it's rad. And then I bought another bike. And then and then I had to buy like a different bike that goes and does a different type of motorcycling. And now I got a street bike and I got a dirt bike and I've got like a bike that can go up mountains and I got a bike that can go underwater. And I've got like 12 bikes in my garage and I fucking love bikes and all my friends are bikes. And then I listen to the podcast and I buy Jensen saying our pro subscription. $40. $40 a year. Cheap. It's like literally like a taco a month. Super cheap. Anywho, but like that's that's what I want to see in the industry. Like like my biggest goal with with asphalt and rubber, well, I've got a lot of biggest goals. But one of my one of my things is like I want to turn motorcycle owners into motorcyclists. I want people that have already tasted it, yep. have already kind of gotta feel like, hey, this yep. is kind of cool. Uh-huh. I want to make sure they stay in the industry because Absolutely. that's how we're gonna keep this whole thing afloat is growing our numbers by one, keeping people in the industry. And that permeates into all sorts of ideas about like helmet laws and other things that we don't need to get into. But at the end of the day, it's like, how can we make sure that if someone, when they buy a motorcycle, they go through all these hurdles, all these jumps, all these things that right. we just described for like the last hour, how can we make sure that they're willing to go do that all over yeah. again? Yeah. And I mean, it's, I'll make, you know, we can make fun of Harley all we want, but they've done such a great job. When you buy a motorcycle at a Harley, a good, reputable Harley dealership, you, you kind of get taken around the dealership and you get to meet the whole staff, right? You get to meet the apparel people, the the Chrome consultant, who's the guy that makes you buy all the expensive shit. <laughs> That's what they're consultant. called, Chrome consultants. I it blew my head off when I saw it. 
And then at the very end of it, when you've done everything and you've already signed everything, they help you sign up right there at the dealership for the local hog chapter, the Harley Owners Group. What better way of getting involved than to have the local club welcome you immediately? And understand that like the Harley-Davidson owner group, hog, is something, is a concept that is taught in business school. I went to a top tier business school and my marketing class within like the first three weeks talked about hog. That's amazing. Our teacher who did not own a motorcycle, who was not into motorcycles at all, had a Harley Davidson pin on his bag because it reminded him of the power of that brand and how well that brand engages with its customers. Very interesting to see that. What other brand do you know that people tattoo on their bodies? Very, very, very few. It's it's interesting to me like when we talk about recalls, we'll Mm -hmm. often uh, see like I think BMW fucking crushes it at recalls they have a lot of them which is a little suspicious (laughs) but they're so good at taking care of their customer during that that process and you touched on it earlier in the show when you talked about like how difficult it is to be in a service department because understand like 90 percent of the time if someone's in the service department they're behind the a ball man it's because their bike blew up and something bad is happening oh yeah so they're not happy they're not happy customers which means if you're the employee that has to deal with them you're dealing with an unhappy person which is probably gonna make you unhappy it's like a vicious circle (laughs) but one of the things that bmw does so well is in these kind of like stressful kind of times is they take care of their customers with just such great excellence because they'll be like oh yeah your bike's gonna be in the shop for two weeks because you know we had to like the forks kept falling off your motorcycle because Hans couldn't, you know, tighten them at the factory correctly. <laughs> Damn it, Hans. But we're going to give you like a bike to go ride and we're going to give you like a $1,500 gift card to work, you know, to buy a thing with at our, our dealership in the apparel section. And like they just go out of the way to make sure that at the end of the day, you're happy about still owning a BMW. And you're coming back. Like, the, hey, this this thing happened. Not ideal. Shit happens. Shyster happens. Shyster happens. But we're going to make sure at the end of the day we've made it right. And I think that's one of the things that other brands could make such a great or could learn such a great lesson from because it's like those are actually opportunities for your brand to shine. Like, hey, like everyone has fuck ups, but how do you fix the problem? How do you recover from it? And that can speak volumes to to a customer in terms of loyalty. Like I've heard people talk about like their how their recall on their bike made them a lifelong BMW owner because they're like, hey, I got taken care of. Like I know down the road. When my stuff breaks or my bike has an issue, this is a brand that's going to take care of me. And that peace of mind is worth any warranty in the world. Um, I think the unsung heroes of every dealership is the service writer. That's such a hard job. And you have to have this pleasant look on your face, even when the customer is yelling at you because something out of both your hands broke. And they're upset about it because this thing that they just spent money on, that's this extra bit of money that they spent on on this luxury, has not broken. And they're they're... It's like watching a kid who just had their candy taken out of their hand. They're upset all the time at you. So if you're a dealership and you're hiring service riders, I think the the smartest thing to do is to buy someone that's resilient and they know how to navigate towards that because it is such an emotional purchase for someone that when it breaks, they get ultra emotional about it. Sure, it's your toy. It's your it's your baby. Oh yeah, and, and understand too, like especially in the United States, and I think I think to a great extent in Europe as well. Motorcycles are a purchase that are that is a reflection of our personality i buy bike from a from a brand or buy a particular bike because that's that says something about me i buy an adventure bike because i'm an adventurous kind of person i buy a super bike because i'm a person likes to go fast i buy a practical commuter bike because i'm a practical computer (laughs) commuter person but you know like they're they're because they're not just pure transportation because it is a fun item 
it, it becomes a reflection of, of who we are. Oh, yeah. So when that thing breaks, it's not just like, yeah, my car's in the shop. I'm not going to be able to get from point A oh, to man, point it's like B a again. Piece of your soul just broke. Yeah. It's like, yeah, like my, my child that I love the most is, is not working. Like a part of me has died inside and I can't express myself to my fullest potential yeah. and all these like other millennial things that go on in my <laughs> mind. But that that's like a, it's like an emotional there's emotion tied to it i guess is the point that i'm trying oh, to make absolutely that's 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 the ultimate thing about you know owning a motorcycle it's very emotional and same with the purchase which is why i always tell people you're buying this fun thing you're buying this thing that's going to be an extension of your heart and soul so have fun with it even when you're buying it you shouldn't have to get so stressed out when it comes to buying this thing the people that are selling it to you 99% of the time they're they're just like you they're they're a bunch of enthusiasts who are not doing it for the money i guarantee you most motorcycle salespeople don't make that much money, but they love it. They they love being able to say, I put another bike on the road. They love seeing your face when it's happy. And unfortunately, a lot of times people get so wound up because they're treating it the same as buying a car, because unfortunately, a lot of dealerships are treating it as if they're selling you a car. And so that, that sort of thing needs to be dealt with from the top tier of the dealership. The owner needs to hire managers that aren't like used car managers they need to be a little bit more cognizant of what's happening now in the trends of how people buy things and who these people are if you're going to have the same old idea you did 10 15 years ago you're not going to go anywhere you're just going to go backwards i think that's huge i think you hit it right there if you're going to act like it's still 10 to 15 years ago you're going to die just like every other brand in the motorcycle industry that's treating it like yeah. it was 10 to 15 years it's, ago it's a new game in a way it's not absolutely. that new of a game like it should be pretty obvious like we're, it's not like we're playing Parcheesi and no one really knows how to do that. Like this is this is still like checkers, but it's like fancy checkers. Super fancy checkers. It's not chess, but it's checkers. I mean, like you almost have like chess looking things, but you're playing chess. Yeah, it's like like teak wood instead of Ooh, like little plastic chips. Fancy. Somebody polished this shit. <laughs> but I think that's but truthfully, like Shaheen, like I think that's that's the crux of it, where it's like understanding that like you can't. You can't treat it like how it used to be. The the buyers have changed. The experience has changed. Yep. Some of this is being driven by by what's going on online in terms of access to information, in terms of um, the ability to how quickly we can make purchases and how we make purchases and where the outlets are that we can buy things from. Yeah. And the de- I think I don't think the dealership model is dead. I don't think dealers are dead, but I think we need to understand like the role that a dealership plays in this semi brave new world. Yeah. And and the dealerships that don't understand that and don't give that a critical think and don't start investing in themselves as like a value-added experience. They're going to be gone. They're going to be gone. Absolutely. Because why would a brand keep you around at that point? No. Like, if, if, like if you're just literally like Bob's Motorcycle Depot where I'm just pulling bikes out the back, then you literally will be replaced by Amazon. Oh, yeah. And that's, and that's the thing, right? As I've always said, brick and mortar is in a lot of trouble in the retail industry, period. doesn't matter what you're selling because everybody, everybody's buying things online or they've found new exciting ways to buy it, which is, again, online typically. So I think what any if, if any dealership is listening to this, if you could learn one thing is this. If brick and mortar is in trouble, then you need to learn how to become an experience, not a dealership, an experience. An experience is not just you and I exchanging money for, for something. It's going to be a full spectrum of the customer walking in and the experience they have from the minute they walk into that place to the experience that they get to have post-purchase. So it's up to you to create events and and fun things for the customer to come back to. Because again, the word I'm going to keep using here is experience. You should have an experience there, not just something that you're buying and selling. That's what the Ford dealership's for. 
it's interesting that you bring up the the experience and I'll, I'll, I'll kind of end this with like an anecdote when TPG bought Ducati and they were going to turn around and, and start selling it. Federico Manoli was the CEO of Ducati mm-hmm. and they were trying, what they ended up doing was pitching Ducati to investors, not as a motorcycle company. They're trying to pitch it to investors as kind of something that was closer to like an amusement park. Oh yeah. Where it's like, we're not selling you a vehicle. We're not selling you a car where like the multiple on that kind of business is like somewhere between like the revenue multiple is like 0.9 to 1.2. It's a shitty multiple. Oh yeah. But if you're in entertainment, if you're in the business of selling fun, you know, you look at those, those comparable businesses, like the revenue multiples, multiples were like more like four X to seven X. Like a company becomes worth more because you're not just selling them like a product that's like a transactional thing. When you start selling someone on experience, on fun, when you start making your business stickier, as I mentioned before, right. then it has a lot more value. And I think that's that's where things are headed. If you're not getting sticky, that sounds getting not, sticky with it. Are we not doing phrasing? Uh, I don't. That's just sticky. Just, sticky yicky. I feel like that's how you get ants. <laughs> um, but if you're not getting your business sticky, then then you're going to go away. Yeah. Because that's just it's unsurvival at this point. What's the saying? Four wheels move the body and two wheels move the soul. I mean, that sounds good on a t-shirt. I've seen it on a t-shirt. That's where I saw it, actually. Yeah. But I, I, I don't know. I'm a firm believer in this. I, I've been thinking about dealerships for a long time. And like that's that for me is like one of the most critical things is just this understanding of like you need to be more than just a dealership. You're not worth very much as just a dealership. You yeah. like like we, we talk about like I always have this joke with my colleague David Emmett, who runs Moto Matters. About how like one day we're gonna get replaced by robots, <laughs> you know, joke, like like because we joke around like, hey, like I don't want to ever have a job that can get replaced where I can get replaced by a robot. Like I look at people at McDonald's, like you're gonna get replaced by a mo- robot happening. one day. It's happening because I've been to McDonald's where like I don't have to go and talk to a cashier. I can just hit a kiosk uh-huh. and like touch what things I want, the and then just it slides out, and then it comes out of a slot later, and there's just people in the back making the machine it. Machine just poops it out. I'm like, yeah. eventually, like, you're gonna get like. The checkout person, you're going to get replaced by a robot. Yeah. You look at um, Amazon has this crazy new like grocery store concept for like Whole Foods where mm-hmm. like you don't even have checkout people. You just take things off the shelf and it like hits your Amazon account. Right. You're going to get replaced by a robot. So it's the same thing with like dealerships where like, hey, get your shit together. Otherwise, you're going to get replaced by a fucking robot. Yep. Because if all your job is, is to like take a bike out of a crate, put the fluid in it and shove it out the door when I sign the right papers... That sounds like a job that a robot can fucking do one and day. And let me tell you, customers would rather have a robot because they don't want to be confronted by a salesperson because a salesperson is trying to sell you a used Toyota Especially Camry. Especially if it's like a shitty used car salesman. Absolutely. And that, but and if it's my buddy, yep. if it's my pal, I will who's buy got a great new thing, who's going to walk me through, like, this is the bike for you, Jensen. I've talked to you for like the last couple of days. Yeah. I know what you're looking for. This is the one for you. We test. We went out together and we test rode a couple. And this is this is the bike that you want, buddy. And I'm going to help you find the right gear and get you a helmet and a jacket that fits you right. And you're going to look good. And you're going to feel good on your bike. And you're going to go through the the roads with the twisty scenery, with the hair blowing in your hair, the wind blowing in your hair. I don't have hair on my head. Well, that's 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 a personal problem. Right. I got a full head of hair. I have a full face of hair. You, you got a lot. Of, you got a whole lot of weird hair. But that's that's the value added. That's the like you can't a robot can't do that. I mean, not yet. I'm I kind of worry about the whole future with the robot thing. It's like my third. <laughs> you third and my wife fear. can have many conversations about that. She genuinely hates robots, and I really really want to buy a little tiny robot. I love robots. I think they're adorable. A robot butler is like the dream, right? Right. There you go. Now bartenders are in trouble. Okay. Well, 
Don't get replaced by a robot. Don't. That's, 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 I'm, I'm ending the show on this idea. Don't get replaced by a robot. No. Be sticky. Yes. And get your shit together. Be really sticky, but shower often. Yeah. On that note, I think that's a good note. That's a good note. You know what I say? Safety third. Well, Shaheen, good talk, and I'll see you out there. All right, Bubba. Shine bright like a diamond. <laughs> I feel like that's going to be an outtake. <clears throat> me, 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 me. Um, ba-ba-da-ba-da-ba-da.